In the second episode with Emma Symington, we are solely focusing on Australia's flagship variety, Syrah. The master of wine gives her insights in the evolution of the Shiraz plantings in Australia, covers specific regions with particular styles, then highlights market trends and domestic and international markets. You can also get Emma's personal tips if you are planning to throw a surprising blind tasting on Australian Shiraz. So please enjoy this deep dive into the topic and subscribe to the show if you haven't done already and share this episode if you want to help others to learn about Australian Shiraz from Miss Simington. Enjoy! Cool! So Emma, welcome to the show again. <laughs> Hello, thank you for having uh, me again. So uh, today's topic is going to be uh, Shiraz or Syrah, in this case rather Shiraz probably. Maybe let's start with the question, how did uh, Shiraz become the most planted variety in Australia? Because this is really the signature grape variety. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of the grape in the, on the continent? Absolutely, yes. As you said, I mean, Shiraz is really synonymous uh, with Australia. Today it counts for about 30% of all plantings in Australia, so that's just under 40,000 hectares of vineyard. In Australia, just to give some context to that, I think there's about 60,000 hectares of Syrah in France. So France has significantly more um, than Australia does, uh, but it really is Australia's calling card. Now, in terms of when it first arrived in Australia, records aren't exactly accurate, um, but we think it arrived somewhere towards the end of the 1700s or the very early part of the 1800s. So, you know, well over 200 years ago now. And really, it very quickly um, became a popular grape variety in Australia. I think this is partly because those early regions in Australia, places like McLaren Vale, Barossa Valley, Hunter Valley, these are all regions that have warm Mediterranean climates, and that was a perfect grape variety to suit that sort of climate. So it was a grape variety that really um, found a lot of early popularity with those early grape growers in Australia. Um, and sort of quickly spread across to many different regions. Um, so, you know, throughout the 1800s and through the 1900s, um, you know, it gained in popularity. And by about 1970, it was the most planted grape variety in Australia, the most popular grape variety. Um, and then what we saw through the 1980s and really in the 1990s is we had this huge export boom in Australia. And that's really when the world discovered Australian wine and fell in love with it. And Shiraz is one of the reasons a lot of people fell in love with Australian wine. So it found a lot of popularity in the export markets and obviously therefore more vineyards were planted. Um, and there was a pretty famous guy called Robert Parker um, in America. I'm sure you know him well, a very famous uh, wine critic. And he particularly um, promoted the big, bold style of Barroso Valley Shiraz. So really quite intense, concentrated styles of wines. And a lot of those styles at this time in the 1990s really became cult wines and really helped sort of cement Barossa Valley's um, prominence as such an important region for Shiraz. Now, it has to be said, I'd say within the last 20 years, there's been quite a shift in terms of how Shiraz is grown and how it's made in some of these regions and particularly places like Barossa Valley and McLaren Vale. So as I said, through the 1990s, a lot of these wines that were popular and promoted particularly by Parker were these, you know, wines that the grapes were picked quite late. So, you know, very ripe grapes giving quite alcoholic wines. 
um, you know, very concentrated and powerful in terms of style and tend to have quite a lot of new oak. So these were really over the top kind of blockbuster style wines. And I think what we've seen in the last 20 years is actually a move away from that style. And now really the watchword is all about freshness. So people are picking a bit earlier, making much more restrained, elegant styles of Shiraz, certainly dialed back on the oak, so allowing that lovely fruit to come through, and in general, getting a much more elegant style um, of Shiraz. So Shiraz really has gone on this kind of roller coaster journey, but absolutely is Australia's calling card. Do we know where the oldest plantings in Australia still are and how old are they? Absolutely. Well, not only are they the oldest plantings in Australia, they're actually the oldest plantings in the entire world of Shiraz. Uh, they were planted in 1843 um, and they're in the Barossa Valley. And that is actually owned by the Langmile family now and go into their Freedom Shiraz. So those are vines that were planted, what, 180 years ago um, and still producing grapes and, and making wine to this day. And it's not just that one single vineyard. There's a number of vineyards in Barossa, in McLaren Vale, also in the Hunter Valley and in other parts of Australia um, with vineyards of Shiraz that were planted in the 1800s, mid 1800s. So incredibly old vineyards. And it's something that's really, really special for Australia. And I guess the lack of phylloxera was also a great help for these vineyards. But uh, exactly. Uh, how is the situation with phylloxera now in Australia? Because I think in, in a couple of regions it started a, a little bit, right? Yeah, so phylloxera actually came into Australia towards the end of the 1800s, so a similar sort of time as it happened in Europe, um, and that happened in parts of Victoria. So some regions in Victoria very much have phylloxera, and it's been there since then. Um, but many parts of Australia are phylloxera-free. So the entirety of South Australia, the state of South Australia, Western Australia and Tasmania are all phylloxera-free. And I think that's... Um, We've got to give a lot of credit, really, to the government at the time, particularly in South Australia. So when phylloxera arrived in Victoria, which is its neighbouring state, towards the end of the 1800s, I think they had this incredible foresight to realise what this might mean um, for their vineyards, um, for their produce, for their land. And so they instigated a very, very strict quarantine law in terms of what came into, into South Australia both in terms of other countries, but also across the state borders. So this has meant that phylloxera has never got to South Australia. So, you know, the vast majority of vineyards there are still planted on, on their own, own roots. You were already mentioning or touching up, up on, uh, on the different styles and maybe already present trends. But um, I think Australia also has a very famous, almost like brand. This is this GSM blend, mm -hmm. uh, where Syrah is really a vital part in this plant, right? Um, how is the evolution of maybe this plant and how did it come about in, in this area? Yeah, so our GSM or SGM blends, you know, some of them are Grenache dominant, some of them are Shiraz dominant. Um, it's again, something that was particularly prevalent in particularly Barossa Valley and McLaren Vale. So some of those very early wine regions in South Australia. And partly because those were the great varieties that were planted there. So, you know, Shiraz, Grenache and Morved, they were all grapes that came early into Australia in the early 1800s. They're great varieties that, as we know, sort of thrive in those Mediterranean climates. So, you know, really planted in these regions. Um, and so as a result, people started making blends of them. And I think it wasn't really until kind of the 1980s, uh, 1990s, that these blends kind of became on the map. People became aware of them. 
Um, Charlie Melton, his eponymous winery, um, created the Nine Popes GSM blend, which he thought was, you know, a little pun on Chateauneuf de Pap. He got his French a bit wrong there. Um, <laughs> but that's one of those wines that really put the GSM blends um, on the map. And, and it is really a blend that is quite important for these regions. Mm. Is it still continuing to be a vital part of uh, some some portfolios there? Or do you see the move away of, from that? No, we, we still see quite a lot of GSM blends um, coming out of, yeah, as I said, particularly places like Barossa Valley um, and McLaren Vale. Um, and I think it just gives um, wineries just, you know, a different, slightly different um, wine out of the great varieties that they have planted mm. already. I think Grenache, um, in itself is becoming a great variety that's becoming more and more popular um okay. you know there's incredible old vine grenache as well in these regions and people are treating it in a slightly different way to make these much more elegant restrained styles of grenache um so you are seeing some of that come through into the gsm blends you know perhaps slightly more grenache in the blend and giving you a sort of a lighter more medium bodied style than perhaps you'd have had in the past when they tended to be quite overt and opulent styles mm -hmm. and if we maybe move back to to the northern Rhone style so a single variety syrah mm -hmm. there are common practices in the world to increase the freshness in a syrah right maybe co-fermentation with, with viognier mm -hmm. maybe whole bunch fermentation uh, do you see that um, that kind of trend or movement towards these more fresher style in Syrah? And what are the maybe more common practices that are coming alive in, in this area? Yeah, absolutely. We see both of those things happening um, in in Australia. You know, there certainly is the Shiraz Viognier or Syrah Viognier blends, uh, particularly in regions like Canberra, so a slightly cooler climate region uh, where that blend seems to work really, really well. Um, and absolutely whole bunch is becoming really a key part of the winemaking technique for a lot of people, just giving that added freshness and a bit more structure um, as well to the wine. But it's hard in a way to talk about Australian Shiraz as a broad category because, you know, we have to remember Australia as a country is far bigger than Europe. And there's 65 different wine regions in Australia and 60 of those make Shiraz. So, you know, and of course, within that, there's a huge diversity in terms of the style of wine that is made um, and the climate and the topography and the soil type and everything else. So Australian Shiraz in itself is quite a bit of a misnomer because it doesn't really talk to the breadth and the diversity of the styles of wines you get. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Dear friends, I have to talk to you about something really magical. The last two years were quite challenging for me, working at least 45 hours a week as a sommelier, planning our wedding, keeping my workout goals in check and studying for WSET diploma on the side. It was not unusual for me to feel sluggish and focused and unmotivated even. But the last two, three months were much easier thanks to one product, Magic Mind. This little green drink is a tasty combination of 12 main ingredients, including mushrooms, nootropics, adaptogens and vitamins, respectively. It was created by accomplished scientists, such as Dr. Andrew Weil, maybe you know him from the Joe Rogan podcast. And besides boosting productivity, it even helps reducing daily stress with active ingredients like ashwagandha. So instead of drinking eight espressi a day like before, I just had one shot of Magic Mind every day after lunch with one espresso, an hour before my study sessions. And I was back in the game, feeling sharper and more focused without the roller coaster effect of any other common stimulants. 
the awareness, better focus and to be honest even better mood has lasted into the late hours that work beyond 10pm. Even the taste is quite pleasant, especially if you keep it chilled in the fridge. I think everyone needs a push in his or her daily hustle and I think Magic Mind could work for you just as well as it has worked for me. And if you want to get it cheaper than others, you can get a staggering 56% off your first subscription via the link in the show notes or 20% off your one-time purchase if you use the code WINEGHOST20 in the checkout. That's WINEGHOST without the usual S at the end, 20 in the checkout. But you can find everything in the show notes. Now, back to Australia with Emma. So let's go to the more extremes or to the more niche uh, uh, regions, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. from, if you would n- um, name maybe the coolest climate and the hottest there are for Shiraz in Australia, so maybe the two extremes in in terms of uh, climatic um, um, conditions, and uh, which regions would would pop up in in your mind that maybe also drive a little bit in um, the change of style also in the continent. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, which which should uh, which regions or maybe even which producers uh, should we should we have on our radar here and also in Europe to follow the evolution of the grape variety in Australia? Mm-hmm. Well, talking about different climatic areas, um, you know, I think the move towards more cooler climates. There's certainly a big increase in some of those cool climate regions for Shiraz um, or Syrah in Australia, so places like Tasmania, obviously best known for its sparkling wine, but actually there is a bit of Shiraz planted there, often labelled as Syrah, and you know, giving you that idea that these are very much the cooler climate styles. Um, again, Yarra Valley, so just outside Melbourne, down in the southern part of Australia, again a cool climate region, um, and really making ways with some of its lovely, elegant, medium-bodied um, styles of Syrah. And I suppose I should just make a note here in terms of the designation or distinction between Shiraz and Syrah and really it's entirely up to the winemaker and the marketing team as to what they put on the bottle. Typically we expect Shiraz is used, tends to be used in slightly the warmer climate regions so giving that slightly broader um, more concentrated style of wine. Syrah tends to be used in the cooler climate regions, giving you that more restrained, um, medium-bodied style. But it's not a definite distinction, and you know there is some overlap between those two things. Um, but it really is to give the consumer an idea of what to expect uh, when they open the bottle. So in terms of, I suppose, the other end of the extreme in terms of um, temperature, I mean, Barossa Valley obviously is probably Australia's calling card um, for Shiraz. It is very much that warm Mediterranean climate, you know, hot summer days, colder winters, perfectly matched um, really to Shiraz as a grape variety, which is why it absolutely thrives there. But then some of the even hotter inland regions Places like Rutherglen, for example, which is particularly known for its muscat, you know, its fortified style of muscat. There's also some Shiraz there and making that quite intense um, concentrated style. So, as I said, you know, there are all these very different regions with quite distinct characteristics making different styles uh, of Shiraz. Is it possible to follow up the evolution of the style um, when one buys the subsequent vintages of the very classic uh, Syrahs from Australia. So I don't thinking about um, Hill of Grace or, or Grange or Santari Shiraz from Penfolds. 
So do you see that uh, these are kind of the representations of how the style is evolving or you mm -hmm. should become really maybe tiny or even newer producers to get the, the fresh breeze in your hair, so to say? So those ones you've just mentioned, Hilla Grace and, and Grange and St. Omri, are such particular wines. I don't think you've probably seen that huge change in them because they kind of never needed to. I mean, in the in the style of Hill of Grace, it is its own style of wine. You know, when you taste that wine, it is what it is. It couldn't be anything else. It speaks of its vineyard site. It speaks of its incredibly old vines. And Hill of Grace is up in Eden Valley, so it is a cooler site anyway. Um, so it's always had that sort of line of acidity and structure running through it. So, no, I would say in terms of looking at the evolution of styles, I'd probably go down a bracket in terms of price range. Um, and it's probably not something you'd notice necessarily vintage to vintage. But if you went back 10 years, you'd absolutely notice the difference. So it's it's been that gradual change, I would say, over 10, 20 years, rather than a vintage to vintage change, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And if I would do a blind tasting on a Saturday night, um not even in in europe but also in the us so basically i'm talking about widely available wines mm -hmm. um and if i would uh, want to surprise my guests uh, with a cool climate Syrah, so they maybe find themselves uh, in the northern rhone or somewhere in europe uh, with mm -hmm. a kind of cool climate um nose and also maybe a slightly more sinuous body um which Australian wines maybe should I pick for this tasting to to get a very surprising uh, element in, in into my lineup? Ooh, so many <laughs> options, really. Um, I suppose ones that I often include in tastings, where again you're trying to change that perception or surprise people. Um, Shiraz from Great Southern, so down in Western Australia. So there's a subregion there called Franklin River. Um, which does make this real medium-bodied, restrained style of um, Shiraz, sometimes labelled a Syrah, um, in that kind of earthy complexity. Um, so Franklin's estate, off the top of my head, is you know a really um, top producer there, but there's a number of them. Um, Canberra District is another one that's great to sort of surprise people. So tiny region, obviously based mm -hmm. around Canberra, the capital city of Australia, but this is at high altitude. So um, the region sits between 500 and 800 meters in terms of altitude. Mm -hmm. So you have that impact of coolness because of elevation. Um, and it is a region that tends to give these more medium body styles of Syrah, often labeled as Syrah. Um, but alongside that, you often get this lovely kind of floral note coming through, which often surprises people. Um, mm. So, I mean, Clona Killer is absolutely the, you know, calling card, I would say, for Canberra District. Um, and they do, you know, their, their top wine is their Shiraz Viognier. It's getting very expensive these days. It is absolutely incredible um, and really is one of those wines that helped change perception, I would say, of Australian Shiraz because it is so different to the more classic style, um, but they also produce a slightly um, more reasonable price bottle, which is their Hilltops um, um, Syrah, mm -hmm. um, which is from a, a nearby region called Hilltops. Again, a nice one to go for. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, uh, the Grampians, which is a region down in Victoria, sort of northwest of Melbourne, so the tail end of the Great Dividing Range. So here again, you have some influence of elevation, about 400 meters. 
um, in terms of altitude. And the interesting thing about the Grampians is it's based on granite. And as we know from the Rhone, you know, granite and Shiraz or Syrah tend to go hand in hand. Um, so it's a, a region that really is particularly well known for its mm -hmm. um, fantastic Shiraz. But I think as an aside, the interesting thing about the Grampians, it's a region where you tend to get a lot of black pepper as a flavour coming through in the wine. So much so that back in 2007, at the time, no one knew where this black pepper flavour came from um, in Shiraz, Syrah, around the world. Um, so the Australian Wine Research Institute uh, did some research and based it at a winery called Mount Langy Giran in the Grampians mm -hmm. because as a winery it was particularly well known for this black pepper flavour. Um, and they discovered rotundone, which is the, the flavour, the compound that gives this black pepper um, flavour. Of course, it's exactly the same compound that is in black pepper in, in your pepper grinder. Um, so, you know, that was really important research that was done back in 2007. But just to mention it, because I think this is a flavour that a lot of people associate with cooler climate styles of um, mm -hmm. Syrah or Shiraz. Um, so seeking out something from the Grampians would also be a good idea. Cool. Thanks for the tips. I, I've already taken some mental notes. So. <laughs> And how do you, see, because I, I was looking at some uh, statistics uh, in terms of sales in, from Australian Syrahs. In recent years, there was an upward trend in, in the price paid for, for bottled exports uh, of uh, Australian Shiraz. I also see that among my fellow sommeliers that they are looking for this kind of, or they are turning their head again towards the new world in terms of uh, maybe old varieties, but new styles. So they mm -hmm. want maybe refresh their portfolios. And I also see some of the European families maybe opening up new wineries in, in Australia. Also, the less new oak is uh, very prevalent, I think, among the, yes. uh, the newest styles. Um, how do you see the um, maybe the future of Shiraz? Do you see um, still a great interest uh, in the export markets and also maybe in, in terms of um, consumers and maybe among producers that they want to stick to this variety and maybe uh, experiment uh, with it more? Or how is your perception of this? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, Shiraz is, is not going anywhere anytime soon. As I said, it, you know, it, it represents about 25% or um, well, in 2023 vintage, 25% of all the fruit that was crushed in Australia. So it, it's incredibly important to the country. But as I've talked about, it really has been on this journey. Um, and I think that journey is by no means finished. You know, there's people constantly experimenting with it as a great variety, both in terms of in the vineyard mm -hmm. and in terms of the winemaking. So I think we will see the style continue to evolve over time, um, which is great. You know, no one wants to rest on their laurels. Things should absolutely, you know, be looking for the next way to improve things. That all being said, from a consumer point of view, I think there is and will forevermore be the sort of consumers that love the big, bold styles of Shiraz. And that is totally fine. That's also people who love, you know, drinking that sort of wine from Argentina or France or Spain or America. Um, so those people are never going to go away. So I think we might see in time more of a split in the terms of styles that are made. Um, you know, some some going for that big, bold style, some going for that more restrained, elegant style with perhaps, you know, a little bit in the middle, too. Um, but I think it's a really exciting variety. And I think just seeing where it's come in the last 10, 20 years, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the future.
Mm. And also maybe one of the biggest advantages for a producer in Australia that they have this uh, similar freedom as in the new world anywhere basically like in the US that you don't have these strict rules in in the appellations right mm-hmm. uh, basically as um, as in Europe do you see that uh, changing or do you see that this is kind of one of the biggest cornerstone of of the winemaking in in australia as well so they they or are they gonna get stricter maybe with regulations i i don't see the regulations changing i don't think there's any uh desire for that to change mm-hmm. both in terms of from the winemakers and producers or actually from the final consumer um i don't think there's a need and really it gives as you said the winemakers uh, and the grape growers so much freedom to experiment and change things which is absolutely a positive that being said i think what we see from the grape growers and the winemakers side is a more of a move to promote single vineyards and discover you know subregions within um, particular regions and really focus down into the soils and the microclimates um, where they are. And we're seeing certainly more single vineyards being named on labels than we had in the past. So I think there absolutely is that move to that microsite um, kind of spectrum and more interest in, in that side of things. But I don't think that's going to be um, done by any sort of legislation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, here I'm living in Austria. I don't know if you heard about it, but they, I think it's a, it's been a topic for a decade now, probably mm-hmm. in this country, to distinguish between uh, Premier Cruz and Crown Cruz. Do you see that in Australia this is only decided uh, by the producer or by by maybe a regional body that but the soil and but the microclimate could bring to the table or or how the wine should be characterized by the microclimate? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is basically up to the producer. So there's a huge amount of research going on in various or many regions across Australia, looking into the soils, into the climates. Um, I'll give you an example. In McLaren Vale in South Australia, they've done a huge amount of research into the soils and the geologies in the region. Um, and what they discovered is there's something like 40 unique geologies, the bedrocks uh, within the region. And on top of that, there's 19 different soil types, mm. uh, which is just so much more complex than we imagine You know, most wine regions in Europe, for example, have. Yeah. So it's a very, very complex picture in Australia, mostly because it is such an ancient continent. Um, so, so eroded over time and, and that really has this absolute patchwork of different soil types. So it's something that is of key interest, I'd say, within regions, certainly from winemakers and grape growers, um, and there's research happening. Whether that will sort of eventually result in more sub-regionality, I don't know. Um, and there is a governmental sort of department that you know regions can apply to if they want to have official sub-regions, um, which do exist in some places. Uh, for example, in the Adelaide Hills, just outside Adelaide, is quite a big region they have two official sub-regions uh, Lenswood and Piccadilly Valley so they have gone down that route um, of designating particular sub-regions other regions haven't quite got there yet but it is certainly something people are very aware of and are um, thinking about mm. and maybe it's gonna be a bit too geeky for some listeners but uh, how is uh, how big of a topic is uh, cloner selection in terms of Syrah in Australia 
Do you see that the people are matching certain clones of Syrahs, maybe with certain soil types or microclimates, or it's not as uh, popular or well-known uh, among producers? So I think the broader subject of clones is very much important to a lot of people and it tends to be more talked about with varieties like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay where obviously there are a lot of different clones available. Now you have to remember in Australia you know there's a lot of early grapes a lot of early grapevines um, genetic material came in in the early 1800s from then until about 1950-1960 basically no new genetic material came into Australia so everything that is in the ground between that time has, um, and we are going to get quite geeky now, in terms of epigenetics, has sort of adapted itself to the environment. So there's actually a lot of interest in taking um, mass cell selection from old vine stock and planting that rather than necessarily going to more modern clones. And this is particularly the case with Shiraz because there is such a breadth of amazing old vine stock um, in Australia. Mm. So yes, it is important, but I'd say it's less important than for something like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. And maybe also another geeky question, but uh, in terms of uh, vineyard management, because Australia and especially some of the hotter climates, what you already mentioned, like Barossa, are really famous, um, not only because of their old wines, but because of their bush wines, right? Mm -hmm. uh, do you see that it's going to maybe, like in terms of new plantings, are there are some people who are um, planting bush wines or do you kind of have to move to VSP trellising because of the labor shortage? I don't know how big of a topic is it in Australia, but I think in Europe, uh, like right now, I, I, I'm I'm learning a little bit more about the Tuoro Valley, and mm -hmm. this is a really big topic, right? Yeah. Uh, there, because mechanization is very limited. Uh, so, how big is is this topic in um, Australia, and uh, how are maybe wine growers reacting to that? If that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, labor is an interesting topic and, you know, obviously Australia being a country that's a long way away from anywhere else um, and doesn't have a huge internal population given the size of the country, um, it is absolutely something that is um, of key importance uh, for grape growers and winemakers and, you know, many other industries, of course. When it comes to bush vines, I'd say it's probably more of a, um, a conversation with Grenache really than it is with Shiraz because um, I think there's a lot of understanding now that bush vine Grenache or bush vines gives Grenache um, a certain characteristic and it's a, a really important um, and good way of managing those vines. Um, and because Grenache has become quite a popular and therefore quite a valuable grape variety to have, particularly in Barossa and McLaren Vale, um, actually new vineyards often are going in as bush vines now with the knowledge that that will you know, cost a certain amount of money to manage, but it is the best way to manage um, these vines. Uh, and that is the way that all those original, very, very old vineyards were planted as bush vines. Uh, so you do certainly see that when it comes to Grenache. Shiraz, I certainly don't know of any new vineyards going in as bush vines. That's not to say it's not happening. I, I would imagine most Shiraz is going to be trellised in some way, um, not necessarily VSP. Um, a lot of people have more kind of broader, um, bushier vines, so you get more shading. Um, 
rather than necessarily VSP, but there's going to be a lot of different things um, going on. Cool. Emma, thank you very much for your uh, deep insight and knowledge. <laughs> I think uh, these episodes, um, these two episodes that we already recorded, uh, I think are really great help, not only for listeners who are who want to geek out on and trellising and, and bush vines <laughs> the election, but also uh, maybe a better understanding of Australia and maybe also giving Australia a new face and a new uh, image in terms of uh, climates and, and styles. Um, where should people go for more information just to keep up with, uh, with Australia and Australian wines and the evolution of the continent? Uh, so we, as Wine Australia, who I work for, we have our um, education website, which is australianwine.discovered.com. Um, and there's a huge amount of information on there. So there's 28 modules now covering all the key grape varieties, the regions. And there's some broader topics as well, like there's one on old vines and there's one on sparkling wine. There's one on organics. Um, and then within each module, there's a PowerPoint presentation you can download really and use as you see fit. Uh, there's a study guide. So particularly if you're studying for WSET, it's a really brilliant thing to um, go and grab. Um, there's video content, all of our maps are available there. So there's a huge amount of information and it's all freely available. And um, you can just download it and use it as you see fit. Cool, thank you very much. Actually, I'm gonna do that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> cool, Emma, thank you very much. Would you like to add something? Uh, I think that's everything for me. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye, have a nice day. Bye, thank you. Bye.